Welcome to our week three Summer on the Mount sermon series. We will be looking at Jesus's most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount all summer. Today's scripture passage is from Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In the 1850s, a group of French scientists gathered together and concluded, modern man cannot believe the Bible is a word from God anymore. The idea that the Bible is objective truth is a superstitious approach to scripture. In the 1970s, clergy from all over America were asked, do you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God in any unusual sense? 75% of clergy said no. The Episcopalians and Presbyterians were the highest percentage at 89%. Last year, according to a Gallup poll, a record low of Americans, 20% said the Bible is the word of God. A new high, 29% said the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. The question I ask you today is, where do you stand on the Bible? What do you think of the Bible? Word of God or word of man? Believable or unbelievable? Helpful or harmful? What do you think of the Bible. Today we're going to start by seeing what the most influential, important, and impactful teacher in all of human history thought of the Bible. And whether you know it or not, this teacher laid the groundwork for what we modern people call human rights. This teacher taught humanity to bestow dignity upon children, the disabled, and elderly. He came up with the golden rule. He inspired movements that resulted in the creation of public hospitals and public schools. He inspired his followers to abolish slavery and to stand up for civil rights. The impact that this teacher continues to have on society makes intelligible and educated people at least ask, what did this teacher teach about the Bible? And the teacher's name, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one Christians call Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount what he really thinks about the Bible. But before we go there, it is important to realize that when Jesus refers to the Bible, he refers to the Bible that he read, not the Bible that you and I have today. At the time of this teaching, Jesus had not yet inspired the writing of the New Testament. Jesus's Bible was what you and I call the Old Testament. And during Jesus's day, 
the Jewish people had different names for the Old Testament. One of the names was the law and the prophets. The law included the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets included the history writings of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles, in addition to the writings of all the prophets. A third category of the Old Testament that Jesus does not specifically name here was called the writings. The writings included Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and a few other books. When you hear Jesus teach about the law and the prophets or the Holy Scriptures, know that Jesus was referring to the Old Testament in its entirety. And scholars agree that one of Christ's motives for presenting his view of the Bible is his view had been misunderstood. The religious leaders, his critics, were suspicious of his view of the Bible. They had seen him pluck corn on the Sabbath, heal the sick on the Sabbath. They, they heard as, as he taught in his own name, in his own authority, rather than in the name of Moses. And they were under this suspicion that Jesus not only disobeyed the Holy Scriptures, Jesus disregarded the Bible. And here's what Jesus says to his critics and his followers. He says, don't imagine, don't think for one moment that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You want to know what the most impactful, influential, and important teacher in human history thinks about the Bible? Jesus would say, the Bible, I came to fulfill it. The Bible, I came to make it happen. The Bible, I came to make it true. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac, liberation from bondage, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Passover lamb, the sacrifices of for sin, the priest, the temple, the promised land, the Bible, I came to fulfill it. The Bible is all about me. I am the second Adam. I am the true Isaac. I am the lion of Judah, the lamb of God. I am liberation from sin and death. I am the ultimate sacrifice for sin. I am the true temple. I am the way to the promised land. Jesus said, the Bible, I have not come to dismantle it, disregard it, or disobey it. I came to fulfill it. What does Jesus think about the Bible? Jesus thinks that he came to fulfill it. The late Presbyterian pastor Tim Keller once said, there are two ways to fulfill the law. The first way that you and I fulfill the law is by obeying it. The second way is by paying the price when we break the law. When you leave your home today, you will have an opportunity to fulfill the law. The first opportunity arrives when you pull your car out onto the main road. There will be a speed limit sign and perhaps in, in your neighborhood, like our neighborhood, it'll say 25 miles per hour. Despite popular opinion, speed limits are not suggestions, they are the law. And you can fulfill the law by obeying the speed limit. Or perhaps 
you'll have a second opportunity to fulfill the law. And the reason you'll have that second opportunity is because rather than going 25 miles per hour and obeying the law, you'll decide that you may be able to get away with breaking it. And perhaps when you break the law, a friendly police officer will stop you and issue you a ticket. When you pay that speeding ticket, you fulfill the law. You are no longer condemned under the law. The, the law no longer demands anything of you. You are free under the law. During Jesus' 33 years on earth, Jesus fulfilled the law. First, he fulfilled the law, the Old Testament law, the word of God, by obeying it perfectly. As sinless son of God, Jesus fulfilled the law in the way that he lived his life according to the law. Second, Jesus did not just play by the rules. He did not just fulfill the law by obeying the rules and regulations. Jesus fulfills the law the second way. Jesus willingly pays the penalty for all us lawbreakers. Everyone sitting here today has broken God's word. We, we've violated the holy law of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wage of sin is, is death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus pays the wages of sin with his life. On the cross, Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. Here, here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin. God made him who, who obeyed the law perfectly, the one who had no sin, to be sin for us, that Jesus became a lawbreaker in God's eyes so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus um, breaks, Jesus is seen as a lawbreaker so that we would be seen as innocent under the law, freed from the punishment under the law. Paul writes in Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. When you place your faith, your life, and your salvation in Christ's hands, when God sees you, God sees Christ's righteousness. Christ takes your failing score and gives you his perfect score. Christ takes your sinfulness and gives you his righteousness. Christ takes your punishment under the law and gives you his reward. When you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're righteous before God. The old has passed away. You are a new creation in God's eyes. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. If we are made righteous through faith in Christ, not under the law, what do Christians do with the Old Testament law? Here's how I came to think about our interactions with the Old Testament law. We have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an 11-month-old. And we have three big rules in our house. At 1 p.m. every day, everyone goes up for naps. And, and it's a great rule. Even if they don't sleep, they go up for a nap. And as long as they nap, when, when they wake up from their naps, my, my children are, are generally happy. They are free from the tyranny of meltdowns and tantrums. However, when they don't take their nap, it can get disastrous. A second big rule that we have in our home is always tell the truth. 
Now, when my children are in their 20s out of the house working full-time jobs, which rule do you think still applies? Which rule do you think will expire? Uh, the, the answer is when, when they're old enough to work, I don't want them napping during the day. I want them at work. Also, there will be no need for a nap. The, the nap rule has expired. However, as children and as adults, telling the truth is a rule that transcends age and life stage. Those, that rule will stand for all their lives and for all time. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an Old Testament commentator, says that the Old Testament law consists of three categories, judicial law, ceremonial law, and moral law. The judicial law was handed down by God to Moses for a specific time, place, and people. The time was ancient days. The place was the nation of Israel, and the people were the Hebrew or Jewish people. God gave the judicial law to teach the Hebrew people how to live free, just, and faithful lives after 400 years in Egyptian slavery. We no longer live in ancient times. We do not live in Israel, and we are not Jews. The New Testament tells Christians to obey the laws of the land, whatever land you might find yourself in. If, if someone commits adultery, don't take them out and stone them as it was written according to the judicial law. Obey the laws of the land. Why? Judicial draw, law was for particular time, people, and place, and we are no longer under judicial law. It has served its purpose and has expired. The second category is ceremonial law. Ceremonial law laid out God's will for ritual and religious purity. There was a temple. There was a high priest. There was a system of sacrifices. Why don't we do these things as Christians? Jesus refers to himself as the temple. Jesus came as the great high priest. Jesus becomes the sacrifice for our sins once and for all. We do not follow ceremonial law because in Christ, ceremonial law was fulfilled once and for all. What about moral law? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? What do we do with love your neighbor as yourself from the book of Leviticus? What about caring for the poor, the widows, orphans, and immigrants from Deuteronomy? Here's what Jesus says about the moral law, Matthew 5, 19 and 20. Therefore, if, if anyone sets aside, if anyone relaxes, one of, these, of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, don't set aside the moral law, the commandments in the Old Testament. Practice and teach these commands. Practice and teach the moral law. And, and what we'll see over the next few weeks is that Jesus not only draws upon the moral law of the Old Testament, Jesus intensifies and creates a higher standard for morality for his followers. You think that you're, you're righteous because you haven't killed anyone, right? Thou shall not kill, but you're angry. You might as well be a murderer, says Jesus. You think that you're a good husband because you don't cheat on your 
wife, but you've given yourself over to lust. You're an adulterer, says Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. You think that you're a good person because you love your family. You you love your friends. You you even love your, your crazy church family. Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus intensifies God's commands from the Old Testament. Jesus makes the bar higher, not lower, when it comes to morality. Jesus takes us to the heart and the spirit of the law in his Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, I'm not just coming to free you from the worst behaviors. I'm coming to free you in heart and mind to live like me. He says, whoever practices and teaches these commands, whoever takes the Old and New Testament and applies them to their lives by the grace of God, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You'll be even more righteous than the greatest of rule followers in Jesus's day. Last thing, what about love? (laughs) Haven't we heard it said that that love is the fulfillment of the law? In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, Jesus was asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were doing our marriage devotional. And at the end, we had to identify our, how our spouse receives love. And my wife turned to me and said, I, I, I know, Greg, I, I know how you receive love. And she said, Spaghetti. Full belly, full heart. And I looked at my wife and I said, I know how you receive love. By, by doing this. By, by, by experiencing emotional and spiritual intimacy in our relationship. By talking and connecting and sharing our hearts and sharing God. How, how do I know what my wife, Melissa, loves? I pay attention to what she says. I learn what she loves and what she doesn't love, what she likes and what she doesn't like by paying attention to what she says. How do we know what God loves? How do we know how to love God? How do we even know how to love people? What it is to be loving toward another human being and what it isn't. Pay attention to what God says. Pay attention to the Bible. The, the Bible is what shows us what God loves and doesn't love. God, the Bible shows us what love is and isn't. The Bible shows us what God is like and what God likes. The Bible leads us perfectly into God's love and shows us God's love and how to love people. And according to Christ, that is true greatness. To be great in God's eyes, to be love, means following the Bible. Christ came. Christ laid down his life that all who believe would be made righteous in Christ's eyes. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith, your salvation, and your life in Christ's hands, you are righteous. You have been made righteous through faith in Christ. And now, for for, for those who have been made righteous for Christ, the calling is to live by the scriptures, to live by the Sermon on the Mount, the Old and New Testament. And what that means is to live righteously because Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets and Christ fulfilled it. Christ was the righteous one. And now Christ calls you and I to follow in his footsteps, 
And that means to live righteously. So this summer, spend it with us on the mount, learning how to live like Christ, to live righteously for the glory of God. May it be so. Amen.